Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Kyle Coos and Matthew Hodler uh, from the University of Rhode Island to discuss their article, Saturdays are for the boys, Barstool Sports and the culture, Cultural Politics of White Fratriarchy in Contemporary America. Um, the article was recently published in the Sociology of Sports Journal. Um, you can find the full citation of the articles in the show notes. And uh, I first off, before I introduce you to um, articles, awesome. It was super well written. It was really interesting. And as I just said, I had to look up uh, at least three or four new words. Um, but it just it took me down a rabbit hole because I went down and started looking at the document uh, docu series that you analyzed. And but just a really fascinating article. So welcome Matt back and Kyle. Welcome to uh, to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having us. Really appreciate being back. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. So, first, I, I didn't know I I didn't think I knew Barstool Sports, and so when I read the article, I was like, "Oh, I've heard about it, but I don't know anything about it." And then, as I read the article, then I started going down the YouTube rabbit hole and watching this, and I saw the flag in the background. And I was like oh, I do know this company and I do remember these controversies and also some of them like people that I know and like uh, students have these like, you know, when Zoom happens, like you have Zoom classes during the pandemic, I see this flag and I'm like, oh, that's the flag. And then it's just like unraveled a lot. But I know there are some uh, listeners that don't know what Barstool is. So can you start off by giving like a little bit of a history or uh, maybe just like an overview for like non-US based people who, who might be listening to this? Yeah, I mean, it's, as we said in the article, it's a huge multi-platform uh, media and sports gambling and lifestyle behemoth. Uh, so it's hard to describe really quickly, uh, but essentially it is a, um, they call themselves a sports humor um, a media company uh, run by a guy named Dave Portnoy or founded by a guy named Dave Portnoy in 2003. Um, for, for the common man, by the common man um, was the original tagline that they still kind of use to kind of as their mission statement. Um, and it started off as a free newspaper driven by ads um, that gave um, gambling advice and just sports commentary uh, up in Boston, and was really Boston-centric for the first few years of its um, existence. And then sort of in 2008, 2009, is when it had on, been online for a little bit, and then it just kind of took off uh, and became kind of like a, like a northern city, mostly Boston, New York, and Chicago, sort of um, sports news, blogs, um, quote-unquote humor um, information, and they have, uh, but they've grown into this huge podcast site. It's really big with um, colleges I know in the Midwest. And I have I have a colleague at Towson University, I was just talking the other day, that sees Barstool stickers all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know if I really described what it is yet. Um, it's, it, as we said in the article, it's a fraternity. It sort of seems like a digital frat, quote unquote, frat house. Um, where it's a bunch of guys um, just making content um, about sports and about humor um, and about their lives. Um, YouTube videos, podcasts, um, 
and blog posts that you can sort of kind of immerse yourself in that lifestyle um, 24-7, 365 days a year if you want to. It's kind of a fascinating thing. It's really popular with our students up here, or at least it was um, when I first got here. Um, and uh, I know that it's pretty popular everywhere else. Did I miss anything? I mean, the only other thing I would add is just it also kind of expanded by using, you know, not unsurprisingly for a space that's, you know, geared towards young men and their tastes and things like that, but it really used local images of Boston kind of women, yeah, scantily clad to, like, really expand its, like, footprint, um, both, it, like, locally and then digitally. Yeah, you're talking about having to look up words. Like, I had to look up the word smoke show. Uh, when I first started looking at Barstool, because they really relied on and local smoke shows where they would like take pictures of off the internet of women, uh, local women, and put them on there as a way to drive traffic um, in their early years, like that kind of thing. And, um, and so, like, sometimes yeah, without really... their consent, right? Like they was just like scraping a picture off the internet and putting it on and bringing people to the to the website. Yeah, yeah, and it really drove traffic that way. And they often did it with celebrities without their consent and also without paying the um, uh, paparazzi who took the pictures or the media who took the pictures um, as well. And that was like an early um, driver of their um, And I mean, I, I looked up some of, the, some of the numbers you talked about in the uh, paper. Like they have 62 different podcasts that, you know, are, are – getting listened to by like 7 million people, you know? So this is like a massive, you think about the ad revenue that you can pull in on, on that alone, like, and the market, like, obviously these are maybe like smaller, like the Baltimore, like podcast or the Cleveland podcast, but they, that's like, that's a media empire, you know, in a, in a way. Yeah. I mean the previous, or at least one of the previous iterations of Barstool, as it expanded outside of Boston was to really try to like create other local, local centric kind of like a Philly bar stool, a, a New York bar stool, a Chicago bar stool. And like, they tried to tap into some like local professional athletes who had big followings. Um, almost always they were like white male athletes. Um, but they, and they tried, they would hire local people to get into the vernacular of the city. So they really saw themselves as like kind of the heartbeat drumbeat of like local sport news. And they always had, I mean, part of what they did, they had this unique voice of like how young people were talking about sports, especially those like that slice of like young folk who were, you know, um, you know, on PC and, and kind of unapologetically so and things like that. Like that was my first like, yeah. The first time I kind of was introduced to Barstool was by a student who was in my gender issues of sport and physical activity class. And I think in like week three, he like said to me, he just rose his hand. He's a kid from like Boston area. And he's just like, when are we going to stop talking about all this feminist shit? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, did you not read the gender issues part? Like, you know, in, in the title. But he, you know, another like comment he made was he talked about this is the pussification of America. And I was like, this kid doesn't really have like this understanding of American culture to come up with that phrase on his own. And I was like, where did you hear that? And he said, oh, you don't know about Barstool Sports? And that was like the first time I had heard of it. It was probably around this time of 
2008, 2009. And so that, I mean, and I didn't really kind of go back to it, um, you know, actually until Matt came and we started to talk about what might we work on together. Right. Um, but it does have a huge presence here um, in, in New England and Northeast in particular. And that's the only thing I would add to it. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that's, I can't remember. I was gonna because the one the way that I kind of came to it too was thinking about this. Something that you were talking about before we started recording, like seeing the camera or seeing the flags at like fraternity house when I was walking to campus at the university I used to work at, um, or seeing the stickers on the computers um, of students when they come in, and you know, like, um, or I'd ask my students, "What's your favorite? What's your sport media?" Just kind of as a really quick way to get things started at the end of the semester. Like, what do you listen to? Where are you at? And invariably they would mention a, a, a podcast, a Barstool podcast I'd never heard of. Um, or they would always mention, um, pardon my take, and, um, and, and Barstool Vant. I think pardon my take is actually not the name of it. It's Barstool um, Vant, Vant, Vant Talk. Oh, man. This is embarrassing. Yeah, I'm forgetting the name of them, so you can edit that out if I I look like an idiot. Um, uh, But they would always mention these, like, really popular ones. And, like, I had not listened. That's not part of my – it just missed me. Um, But it it was – I feel like I'm losing the the strain here. Um, But it was was really popular when we got up here in campus. And I had a colleague up here who is a um, a Mexican-American scholar, and he was telling – or they were telling me that – when they saw the barstool sticker on their on their um, on a student's um, computer, to them it was very similar to like sort of a closing off of a conversation. Yeah. It was almost like a stop sign. We can't talk about these mm-hmm. things. Interesting. Which really helped me kind of like we actually need to engage with this rather than sort of navigate around it because yeah. that that was one of the ways I used to deal with it. Was I just I just dismissed it which is not really the way that you should be handling these sorts of things. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it's, it's almost, it's kind of pushed into a space through podcasts. What AM radio talk show was, it is still like when I was commuting at Kelsey Fullerton, you know, I, um, when I was coaching, like I listened to uh, Jay Moore sports cause I was on AM radio and that was during my time. And like, like I listen to that and yeah. I don't listen to sports talk radio anymore, but that was a day-to-day occurrence and I can understand because then you start listening to how they say things, you understand the vernacular, you understand the inside jokes and then I could call my buddy and like, I'd say, hey, did you listen to Jay Moore today? And you know, I like, I was very disappointed that he got canceled. Like when he got dropped, I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? And then I discovered podcasts and I've kind of never looked back, but I think the way that you have kind of analyzed Barstool Sports is similar to like uh, Joe Rogan followers, you know, like they, they are a group that really looks up to this one single person, but that's one single person. Joe Rogan hasn't like expanded to multiple podcasts that, you know, so, but anyway, I, we can go on for this, but let's get into the paper a little. I, I want to hear what the term in your um, in your title, you talk about white fratriarchy. Can you explain that so we can kind of start from that and then uh, move forward? So yeah, we one of our colleagues, Holly Thorpe, um, used this term that uh, hadn't been used, I think, for about a decade. There was another sports sociologist, John Loy, 
um, and Doug Booth, I think before that, or around the same time, used this term free charity. So free charity is a form of male rule um, that's different than patriarchy. So patriarchy is a form of male rule that's generally organized around the idea that there's a father that is in control and, you know, that kind of rules over um, the rest of the group. But patriarchy is a form of male power that's really predicated on the idea that, like, um, male power can operate through brotherhoods. Um, and all, and the other thing about patriarchies, patriarchies often don't involve and include all men, but they include a select group of men. Usually they're younger men, according to this guy, Remy, who, who coined the term. Um, and they're usually men who want to create a social space where their values, their norms, um, and really kind of the general kind of ethos of, of the, the space is that they want to be able to do whatever they want without any constraint, without any penalty, um, without any anyone, and in particular, without women telling them what to do. Um, so when we, you know, when Holly, Holly Thorpe used this term um, in some research she did about snowboarders and the cultures that they create, especially because they were very male-centric and they might include some women, but the women had to follow the norms that the boys set and things like that, and that was the only way they would be included. Um, so we thought this was a great like concept to use to make sense of Barstool. Um, we kind of added the racial dimension to it because Remy and others didn't really talk too much about how um, patriarchies operate racially. Um, but one of the things we wanted to point out in this research about Barstool was just the we were trying to kind of decode the ways in which race shaped the space without saying anything. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Uh, I mean, it kind of for me, like when Kyle found this term patriarchy, it kind of felt like a continuation and a more nuanced perspective and a updated version of like kind of what Mike Messner um, had talked about early in the 1980s and 1990s about sports being a site of male domination, male centric um, uh, uh, space, like sites. And like students can easily, and I can easily like point, well, no, women are playing sports now. Women are on TV now. And this was a way of seeing how this operates in a current space. Um, and that idea sort of kind of runs through um, and like the racial component, like we looked at this documentary series and there are less than a handful, less than two handfuls, definitely over like a, what, seven and a half, eight hours of video of a, um, a person of color getting to say something to the camera, right? right? And this retrospective history of this entire thing. And then as Kyle pointed out earlier, they have a habit and a practice of getting white stars or white local stars like Gronkowski, Brady, um, Jay Cutler, um, who's that quarterback for the Jaguars before Blake Bortles? Or was it Blake Bortles? Bortles. Yeah, yeah Bortles. Yeah. Like as these guys who um, were like, kind of like the either explicitly like being on stage with the, with the guys in Barstool or being a part of their skits or uh, promoting them uh, by wearing their hats or whatever. And like this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Like they added authenticity and like that idea of this is how guys really talk. And they really kind of brought that in. And it's overwhelmingly repeatedly um, white uh, folks and white men who are doing this um, 
and it's sort of that's one of the ways that we wanted to think through how gender and race kind of co-articulated um, with each other in this space. But you talk about in the paper that Barstool also started including women. Uh, can, what was going on at that time and how was that kind of like seen as a strategic move to get ahead of any criticism? Yeah. That was a blackout tour. Like yeah. Like, yeah. So like in, I guess it was about a decade ago now, um, they had these things called the, the Barstool blackout tours. And that, and interestingly, I just realized, and I don't know if, I don't know if we put this together. We did not put it in the paper because it wasn't necessary. But they were going to reinstitute these blackout tours right before COVID happened. Mm. Um, and the blackout tours were these parties, and we kind of talked about them in the paper, where they would travel around. And they started off as these kind of do-it-yourself events in colleges. Um, and they called them, quote-unquote, blackout tours because they would just have black lights. Mm. And obviously, there's a double meaning to this, at least one double meaning about getting drunk, blackout drunk. Um, and then they turned into these wild events, and they very much, uh, you and, I mean, I think you're old enough, I don't know if you saw them, um, but like the Girls Gone Wild videos, yeah. commercials, you remember those commercials in Late Night when you're watching ESPN, um, and this like kind of voyeuristic camera coming in and like lingering on women, making out, and uh, and then asking you to buy these DVDs. Um, and th these blackout tours kind of had this approach, and there was obviously all sorts of drinking involved in these ones, underage drinking, towns were organizing against them, but there was a feminist group that was pretty successful in Portnoy in the, in the documentary series, talks about how successful this group is out of uh, Boston University, right? It's at Boston University yeah. in Northeastern um, called Kale Barstool. And they were explicitly feminist and they were talking about this was unsafe environments and really pointing out to some of the history of sexism of the of the company and Dave Porter in particular, his former his rape jokes, um, his um, misogynistic comments and writing, um, their use their justification of women, and sort of like this was like a, co a coalescence. <laughs> All of the um, uh, anti the feminist kind of critiques of, of Barstool kind of coalesced in this in this space, and then um, they were trying to sell their company and they hired this a CEO a few years after that and brought her on as sort of like this way to deflect um, these comments that were being sexist. Cause how can the company be sexist if your CEO is a woman, right? It's right. kind of like the, the basic way they used it. And then her Twitter handle is token underscore CEO, right? Which, which is yeah. kind of like a, and, you know, a, a tongue in cheek kind of joke back and also, you know, so. When her and another woman um, personality for Barstool had a short had like a short a short run podcast called Complicit. Also, okay, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's definitely interesting. There's a there's a lot of layers to this. Um, you know, in in the paper, you also talk about politics and how um, Barstool has shaped the discourse based on like politics, also and how. Donald Trump sat down during his 2020 um, campaign to interview with Barstools because basically they saw the the data that, you know, that is Barstool is a really good place for uh, for capturing the attention of young males, that 18 to 34 age group that is 
really highly coveted by marketing. And then they started seeing that these, you know, males that were watching Barstool Sports are very conservative. And so um, can you talk about how politics has kind of interwoven into the whole Barstool Sports empire? Sure. Um, start. So the part of like what we wanted to point out was the way in which Barstool was always trying to be anti-political correctness. Um, and their shtick early on was really kind of gender-based where they wanted to create a space where men could feel like they could be men again. Right. And I use that rhetoric even, I mean, it's, it's kind of, the, you know, it's, it's make America great again. Right. It's a similar logic idea of, of the Trump campaign as well. Um, but so, so, and part of what we argue in the piece is that, you know, some people as they, you know, as academics have tried to theorize the rise of the far right with the Trump presidency, you know, they talk about Trump as a starting point for these ideas. Part of what we argue is that if you actually look at the history of Barstool, Barstool kind of predates a lot of the rhetoric and ways of acting as a white male. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a second, being a big man sovereign where, you know, you're just going to do what you want, act king-like, you're going to be fully free, and in particular, fully free of kind of progressive norms and values, right, especially as white men, that, that Barstool was doing all that in, in their space before Trump came along. Um, but the other half, I think what we, we try to do with, like, Barstool is say that, you know, in the moment when they do the, the Barstool documentary series, it's a moment when far-right ideas that used to be, you know, extremist and not get a lot of play in the mainstream are now being brought in through the Trump presidency, in, in part through online spaces, you know, that are becoming super popular through Gamergate, um, you know, men's, men's rights kind of movements and things like that. Um, so this idea that kind of men are in crisis, which is a perpetual kind of idea that actually keeps patriarchy yeah. kind of being reproduced over time. But like that, because of, because of like the amplification of those ideas online, um, those, that, that sense that like, you know, there's this end of men going on, particularly end of white men is an idea that becomes really popular. Barstool taps into that, um, and what we wanted to point out was the way in which Barstool also seemed to be trafficking in ideas about race that were very similar, very homologous to um, a lot of the white nationalist ideas that were popping up at this time and becoming more popular. Um, and in particular, you know, the ideas like people on the far right, um, white nationalists were, you know, saying they want to, you know, have America become a white ethno state again, right? And kind of have all you know, not allow immigrants of color in. And, you know, Trump had some of those um, comments um, about shithole countries and even yeah. saying they should, you know, we should have more Scandinavian immigration. So we were trying to point out the ways in which Barstool was, 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 was producing images of America, images of Boston that were really white-centric in ways that didn't match up with the demographics of the city even, um, and just, you know, I think one of the main points 
we're trying to make in our argument is some people would, would say these ideas only exist in the fringes in the far right. And we're trying to say if you look closely at Barstool and you know, you know, the content of these far right ideologies, these ideas have been in the space of Barstool for at least, you know, half a decade, if not a decade. Yeah. And we think that we think as sports scholars, you know, that's something we should be pointing out, um, especially in this time when culture is so central to the ways in which politics works. And they, they claim that they are apolitical, right? Like that's what they talk about. But as we're talking about the Barstool documentary series, the opening introduction for Dave Portnoy is by Tucker Carlson, which is a political figure, you know, like he's not in politics, but he guides a lot of political thinking in the U.S., for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, this is where, like, we had a lot of really interesting, productive conversations about, like, how much overlap is there in terms of the far-right ideology in Barstool? How much is it explicit? How much is it implicit? Um, Are the challenges that there's, like we pointed out, there's so many different media outlets. I mean, I had a lot of students that just said they only listened to one podcast from Barstool, and they hated Dave Portnoy. And so we had to, like, think through how do these ideas permeate throughout? Um, What kinds of claims can we make about these comments? Um, I think part of the reason why we need to analyze the politics of Barstool, I mean, one, as you pointed out, and as I mean, as Kyle was saying, there's this rise of the Barstool conservative kind of argument, especially immediately after the the election loss of um, uh, Trump um, and this idea that this is the future of the Republican Party. Um, and But a lot of my students just face value when Dave Portnoy said, we're not political, we're not a political company, they just believed it. And they didn't, they ignored the fact that they used to sell Make America Great hats again at their shop. They ignored the fact or didn't know that Dave Portnoy wrote a pro-Trump op-ed um, and basically endorsement um, for his first election and then went to the um, White House in 2020. Like that sort of like idea that we're going to say we're apolitical and then that means we're apolitical is a really potent um, study. And as we, as multiple cultural stars before us, including Kyle's work earlier, that where if somebody says they're apolitical, often they're being political, yeah. obviously. And and I think it's, you know, you talk about this in the paper that it, it would be impossible to analyze the entire Barstool sports industry in a single article. Um, but you, you selected the Barstool documentary series. And I'm wondering if you can explain what that is um, so people can understand, like, what, what was the lens or what was the the piece of Barstool Sports that you actually analyzed for this paper? Yeah. Um, we were, so the Barstool documentary series is, I think it's got 15, 15 different individual videos or kind of stories that together, the way Barstool presents it, this is meant to be their collective story of the history of the company. Um, so, you know, we figured once we started out, when, once we were talking about the idea of doing this research, we're like, look, we might get um, a lot of pushback for this, you know, from all sorts of different places, um, whether it's local or whether it's even national for these right-wing groups. So we were trying to figure out what's the way in which we can do a responsible critique of Barstool that would be difficult for them to dismiss. So we thought the Barstool documentary series would be a perfect 
text to focus on because it's the story they want to tell about themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not our cherry picking from all this different media. Like we've been talking about how much media they produce nowadays. You know, they could easily say, well, you're cherry picking from this podcast and that podcast to paint us in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a negative light. Um, so we thought we would just try to use what's the story they want to tell about themselves and, and, and show that even that story is one that doesn't hold up if their claim is that they're apolitical and they're just trying to tell some jokes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that it kind of came out so out of this idea of, we saw a lot of like solid, well-meaning, like journalism, journalism and uh, journalism criticism. And like just saying Barstool's a racist company, right? Barstool's a sexist company, but we never saw anybody explain how um, necessarily. And so that, that notion about needing to explain how, and also wanting to make sure that we made a good faith critique um, took them for what took them for the story they wanted to tell about themselves is kind of how we chose that. It also fortuitously came out in March of 2020. Yeah. Um, when everything else was shutting down. Yeah. Um, I mean, we started our conversations about Barstool basically meeting for coffee um, during the pandemic outside uh, in spaces that were safe. Um, at that early era and where we could actually just keep thinking and talking about stuff as a way to re I mean, for me, at least it was a really helpful way to reconnect um, during those really kind of uncomfortable and unsafe and kind of unsure early days of the pandemic. And I just caught myself. I remember we were talking about it and I started watching that documentary and it seemed ideal for what we were trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting because I was reading your paper and then it got to the part about saying like, if you look inside the quotes you can copy and paste this into youtube and it'll take you to that specific video and i was like all right let me let me watch one to see what it's like and i just like your papers over here and then i just like sat there for 16 minutes and watched the first episode and then wow. i went back to the paper and then i was like wait i i thought that that video in a weird way was like a critique of themselves because all of the stuff that the first episode talks about like all of the the blackout tours all of the stuff that they like all the jokes and all this stuff that's like i don't know it's pretty off color in certain you know to put it yeah. lightly and then yeah. and then i was reading the paper and i was like oh wow like this is what they say they are and this is what they're really proud of like this is their documentary series and they published it and you know, if you go in there cold without the understanding of being built up as a sports fan and you just dropped in and you watched that first episode, you know, it's it's surprising that a major multi-million dollar company is advertising itself as what all the stuff that they're doing. Um, so I, you, you had four different categories and I'm wondering if you can kind of briefly just explain, like, for example, one of them was Barstool's big man sovereign team. What, what does that mean? Um, so big man sovereignty is a term we, we take from the late, late cultural critic Lauren Berlant. And she did this um, short piece where she was trying to make sense of uh, Trump's appeal prior to his uh, victory in 2016. And, you know, she focused on the rallies that, like, got so much attention, if you remember at that time. And, and she thought, like, what what his followers were really kind of connecting with was this sovereign way that he was behaving as a white person 
and that he could just say whatever he wanted to say, and he wasn't bound by the norms and constraints of, you know, political correctness, or he didn't feel shame or guilt for just defying kind of progressive ideas about the world. And so she said, you know, he, he was kind of displaying and performing this big man uh, sovereign, big, big man style sovereign sovereignty is what she called yeah. it. We tried to make it a little shorter. Um, but, but I mean, it's a perfect way of explaining how Dave Portnoy acts as well. Like his whole shtick is just a similar thing where it's, you know, he's not going to follow any of these norm, these PC norms either. Right. Um, and it's a very kind of masculine way, you know, defiant kind of useful, rebellious way of like acting as well. And I think, you know, the argument we want to make is that coupled with fratriarchy, this way of being, a, you know, a, a kind of defiant, masculine kind of white person who just won't be bound by other people's kind of norms or constraints coupled with the formation of these like white brotherhoods that will include some women so long as they know their place and they conform to the, the norms and values of patriarchy mm-hmm. that this is kind of the, the formula the model for kind of a white backlash in this moment and you can you can see it, you know. I mean, it, it, in the conclusion, we we try to hint at this, where we say, you know, you can see the Trump presidency is organized kind of in this this sort of way. If you remember the news conference Trump had, where he had all of his cabinet members around the table, and they essentially did a lo- loyalty oath. Yeah. And there are a few women there, but it, it's this very kind of you know fraternal order way of behaving. Um, but you know, it's it's the it's the way in which the Proud Boys work. Yeah. It, you know, we, we say it's kind of the ways in which the Federalist Society seems yeah. to work. You know, it's the way the Supreme Court is working now with, you know, Kavanaugh and um, Tony Barrett on it, and Gorsuch. Yeah. yeah and Gorsuch, or me, free and Alito, really. Yeah. Alito is kind of the, the the band leader there, it seems like. But um, in really kind of striking down Roe versus Wade, so. You know, I, I mean, that's the bigger claim we're making. I mean, yeah. Well, and one of the sorry, no, one of the things that I that helped me kind of think through as we were talking about it was one of the ways that I had been reading a lot of white masculinity work, especially t- trying to analyze the culture in the late 2000s, early 2010s, was this idea of victimhood. And you don't see victimhood as the primary narrative coming out of right. Dave Portnoy um, and these Barstool folks. It is a certain kind of performance of big manners. And it isn't that they don't claim victimhood eventually or they don't talk about being attacked, but it's always from a posture of this sort of unapologeticness. Mm-hmm. And so you had written this I, this thing earlier a few years ago about unapologetic whiteness. or un, Is that the right words they used? I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like this big man sovereignty kind of helped tie all these together. And then we were seeing it everywhere. I mean, Andrew Tate, or, um, the guy, is, is a perfect example of what's going on right now. Um, Joe Rogan, like we, we were, I was going to mention that earlier. Uh, we did a conference in um, uh, Las Vegas, and there's some scholars at San Jose State that are doing really interesting stuff on the Joe Rogan podcast and sort of its connections to MMA. I mean, Dana White would be another big man sovereign that I would argue maybe is a part of the sport in a sense, where they kind of reject that narrative of victimhood. And they go on the offensive. Yeah. 
Um, that sort of would be kind of how I would see it operationalized. Yeah. yeah, you brought the second analysis, you brought in humor and you titled it Restoring White Male Prerogative Through Fratriarchal Humor. Can you, uh, can you explain how humor is uh, kind of come out in this uh, docuseries? Uh, um, what is it? I don't I mean, they call, they use humor as a way to say that they're just joking, right? right. And um, I've been reading a little bit more about this. Let me go get this book right quick. Um, I just got this book, and I'm going to start reading. Your listeners can't see this. Um, <laughs> but it's called The Souls of White Jokes uh, by Raul, Raul Perez, uh, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. And I, I think... Some of the ways that like humor works in Barstool that we saw, um, and and that um, I'm continuing to see on other sites is that humor can be used to kind of obviously dismiss um, honest critiques of folks. Like I'm just joking, I didn't mean it. Now you're the problem with mm -hmm. this, right? So one of the examples that we talked about um, in that I've talked we've talked about in the reading, but also I talked about in class was the um, Hauser Gate. Mm -hmm. um, series where years ago, was it 2009, around the same time, um, Dave Portnoy posted, um, a picture of naked Tom Brady's two-year-old son and talked about how big his penis was and called it a howitzer. And that is a blatant sexualization of a child, right? That is a textbook example of, of, of um, child pornography. Um, and, he uh, talked about how, he, well, of course I said it. I say this joke to my friends. And so it's this building of fratriarchy, and it's also used as a, um, a rationale for its own sake. Like, it's, like, I would say this joke to my friends, so I would be, actually, I'd be being dishonest to not say this to more people. And so it kind of builds that, um, that sort of fratriarchy through this kind of shared, shared um, uh, experience. It uh, rejects non for lack of a better term, like non-hegemonic um, groups and organizations, mm -hmm. um, their their critiques because we're just kidding, we're not really being serious. It reproduces those dominant meanings, the dominant understandings of the world. Um, it kind of does that sort of hierarchical sort of um, putting in. Ah, that's not the right way of putting it, but like this idea of recognizing that everyone can be a target because here we are making fun of Tom Brady. Yeah. Um, it also is um, a great way for fans of folks to kind of sort of say, um, deflect criticism of that person. Well, he was just kidding. You understand his humor. Once you get into it, it's sort of like similar to the argument of it's out of context. Um, and it is used, I mean, John Stewart did the same thing, right? Like it's used as a way to sort of um, deflect that criticism of like, I'm not a politician or I'm not a political person. I'm just making jokes. I'm not a sexist person. I'm not a racist person. I'm just making jokes. Right. We're not just a sports company. We're also just a humor company. Um, it would be sort of the way that it operationalizes in there. I don't know if I, I think I missed, did I miss any of the kind of stuff that we yeah, talked I about? Say, I would say, I think that how, I mean, I, one thing we haven't talked about too much, but it, I mean, it took us a while to write this because even as we watched the Barstool documentary series, like it took us three or four times to watch some of these videos and figure out, why does Barstool, like, especially with Howitzer Gate, why is this, like, story and this incident 
important to their identity as a company mm-hmm. and yeah. their ethos. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's them making fun of this, like, two-year-old. But they missed the brag about being child pornographers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But, but then we started to, like, try to, you know, figure out, like, what what's really the, the dynamics that are at work here sociologically? And where the, like, white male prerogative comes in is, you know, the story becomes meaningful in that it's Portnoy in a standoff with, you know, the, the the district attorney of Massachusetts or whatever the, you know, whatever yeah. her official title is. And it becomes this, like, power struggle between here's the boys just trying to have a joke, and they should be able to say and do whatever they want. And here's this feminist killjoy woman who is intruding upon their, like, territory and trying to tell them what they can and can't say. Yeah, and once it kind of gets framed in those terms, I mean, it sounds very much like you know a lot of the far right politicians who are using right kind of First Amendment um, free speech arguments to like you know bring back white supremacy, we would say, or white men's kind of power, yeah, power in society. So, and the prerogative is really a term I found um, from a historian, Stephen Kantrovitz, who who studied um, Reconstruction, and he, 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 instead of, I found it interesting that he wasn't using the term white male privilege, but he was using prerogative. I had to look up, you know, what's the difference between prerogative and privilege? Mm-hmm. But really, prerogative is the idea that, like, white men get to choose how the world exists and operates. And so, you know, we think that kind of idea, that, 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 that idea is key to the dynamic of like Barstool and it, it helps to make, it helps, I think, to make that story of how it's your gate meaningful and important to, to understanding how it works politically for Barstool. Yeah. That's a good, so, yeah. Cause uh, that makes me think right now about like when, like, you know, like the anti LGBTQ right now, there's a lot of talk about groomers mm-hmm. and when you de- when you get to decide it's a joke and when you get to decide it's pornography, right? When you get to decide it's about community building, when you get to decide it's about grooming, right? And that white male prerogative about choosing how to frame uh, humor plays an important role in that. And we saw that, like you were saying, um, in the Barstool docuseries. So you also talked about this idea of reviving Dixie through... Uh, the allure of big white men and white patriarchy. And you talked about one of the episodes or one of the series that they talked about was like this Dixie storming tour that they went all to these college campuses or football college campuses and had all these parties. Can you talk about how that kind of uh, those align? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like to be honest, like this was, something that Kyle kind of helped me kind of see a little bit more nuance and in depth because um, I spent a lot of time in the South growing up. And so like, I didn't necessarily see kind of how it was operating. Like I, I, in the same way that I think Kyle did, um, the guy that hosted out Caleb Presley um, was definitely the, the kind of personality that, I could have seen myself when I was in college being the one that I watched, right? Like mm-hmm. he's the kind of performance he did, the the deadpan humor. Um, he was one of the only people that I actually thought was like, you talked about humor earlier. I don't really think Barstool is that funny in many ways. 
And he was one of the ones that I kind of could see how he was humorous and why people liked him as the personality. Um, that's not to say that I didn't see it, like, critique it, but, like, Kyle kind of helped kind of push through and look, look at the context of this Dixie tour. Is it 2014, 2015 is when and Caleb Presley used to be the UNC quarterback, UNC uh, football quarterback. Um, and he became like the fun officer for the football team or morale officer. Yeah. Director of morale or something like that. Yeah. Uh, director yeah. of morale. And, and he, and then basically the way that we kind of, or Kyle kind of positioned it is like, he kind of joined in Barstool because he was becoming pretty popular. And one thing that Portnoy is good at is finding talent mm-hmm. that can kind of reproduce what they're doing. Um, but uh, the analysis about the Dixie tour. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the Dixie tour in part, Barstool was trying to find a way to expand itself into the South. So it, it yeah. decided to use, you know, you know, the story is, Portnoy was watching a UNC game on ESPN. He saw this story about Presley. I imagine, like, he saw him as competition, so he just, you know, said, hey, why don't we give you a job? But then he he gave them a budget, him and a, two other guys, to go down and just, like, do this barnstorming tour with a big, you know, uh, a bus. And, and emblazoned on the side, it was Dixie Tour with, like, you know, the Confederate flag. So, so at a time when... You know, Bree Newsom is doing her protest where she climbs the flagpole in South Carolina to protest their continued use of, you know, Confederate flags. This is the Obama era as well. So there's all this kind of, you know, birtherism and anti-Obama, uh, you know, kind of rhetoric and, and ideas, especially in the South. You know, it's it's a time when Barstool decides to make itself, you know, a little closer to this history. So it's and it's one of the ways in which, you know, as it tells a story that it's apolitical. I mean, you can't be apolitical in the Obama era, and like you know, position yourself more closely with the Confederacy. Yeah. I mean, those two those two ideas just don't you know cohere. Yeah. So, you know, but we found it interesting the footage that they did show. Um, you know, it it, it it kind of was trying to celebrate, you know, college football, you know, uh, uh, tailgating cultures that they went to and things like that. But one of the things we found really interesting was the way in which they did make a stop at a historically black college, North Carolina A&T. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, there was no party footage at all. <laughs> so there's this, you know, part of like doing close critical readings of, of media like this is not only to look at what's there, but also to like think about what's not being shown or what you know what what is in the frame and what's not in the frame. So we found it really interesting that they decided to show as part of this Dixie tour footage that they made a stop at an HBCU, but there was no party footage. And you know how do, how do we make sense of that? And I remember I showed as we as we were like finishing up this research, I started to show a couple of these. Um, Barstool documentary series episodes to students. And, you know, one class just said, like, well, you can't call, like, Barstool racist if they went to the HBCU. Like, and and that actually, it was the students, like, talking us through that, where it was like, oh, this is how the logic works. This is Mm -hmm. how they would get around this sort of critique of them being racist. They're trying to be inclusive, so the argument would go, right? Right. But just black people don't want to go. 
Right. And, and that's often from, you know, a white point of view that doesn't contemplate what it would mean to be like a few people of color in a, you know, predominantly white space that's not just a, a kind of neutral white space yeah. that's maybe like, you know, ruled and organized by, you know, university officials, but it, it's ruled by young white men who their express purpose there is to party and do whatever the heck they want. Yeah. Well, you know, especially in the South, that's a recipe for especially black people not necessarily feeling too comfortable. Right. Yeah. So, but all the, you know, to, to think about that for especially white students who, you know, here in New England, they have to know a lot more history than most of them know mm -hmm. to make those sorts of connections. Yeah. So, and I think Matt, you, you said something about like, as you as an, in, as a college student, you would have liked one of these specific characters or one of these hosts. Like I, I analyze this too and thought, because before I went to New York and took classes on, you know, critical theory and took classes on, you know, social justice and all this stuff, like I was a college wrestler and like I, that is a, especially earlier on, very homophobic, very like, um, very specific people wrestle. And I, I wrestled and I, it's just like, um, there's you know, the locker room talk and stuff like that, that you don't talk about, like that stuff happens, right? And I, I could totally see myself uncritically being a fan of Barstool Sports as a, as a college student and, and a recent grad. And, you know, like, and it's because I would have gotten to it through friends who watched it, who shared it with me, who talked about it. That was the thing that we would talk about or, you know, I'd, you know, zone in for fantasy football picks and stay for the other commentary. And so like, I can see how this is so interesting to students. And it's also our job as people who are educators in sports and physical activity. And, you know, for me, like physical education to critically analyze this. And like, this is why I think yeah. your paper is so great because it, it, you know, it's always, it's a sports thing. So let's not talk about the politics or the education piece of it. But if the sports people, if the physical activity people are not looking critically at this, then it doesn't get, you know, named. It doesn't get explained. It doesn't get critiqued because it's kind of like in this buffer zone of like, like you said, like people just say, oh, it's racist. Well, show me why. Like, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, I mean... I'm a little bit younger than Kyle, um, but I, I have been, I'm working on a project on this right now about the early history of Barstool. Um, as, and, and I know that you kind of, we've been talking about this, like it came out the same time as like Tucker Max, Maxim was really popular, FHM, like this kind of popular, um, as we talk about in the paper, this popular misogyny, this, this sort of um, yin to the yang, um, or yin, whatever. Um, backlash or like what uh north to the south of um popular feminine uh feminism that was going on in the late 90s early 2000s um and i definitely kind of like i had to reconcile a lot of this while we're while we're watching while we're watching is like i would like like you said i would have liked parts of this um i would like to have thanked thought that like i wouldn't have liked a lot of it just even out, even taking out the fact that I still wasn't always clued into racism and sexism in the way that I 
that I try to be and am now, um, just like I wouldn't have liked some of it because it just wasn't very good. I wasn't very, I wasn't a part of um, the online scene. I mean, I came to the internet later than a lot of other folks just because um, of my own sort of stubbornness. <laughs> um, but like I, like you're saying, like, I kind of wanted to lean into the fact that I would have liked this as a way to help me critique it. Like you were saying, like we have to, as critical scholars, but also as educators, we have to kind of grapple with this stuff. And I think that made me a better co-author, um, a better critic. Um, it's helped me with students, like talking to students about this, like I, cause I kind of get why they're initially drawn in yeah. um, to that sense. Like, like you were saying, like locker room talk is a, is a complicated idea that we need to unpack and it is a practice it is a thing that happens um that helps reproduce a lot of these ideas that we were talking through um it's funny my well my girlfriend is from new boston she's a little bit younger than me but she talked about how when she was on the dating scene how barstool was all over the place yeah. <laughs> and like meet the guys that she met when she was I don't really want to paint her in, in this. The guys that she met were very much into Barstool and like the guys yeah. she went to college with, the guys she went to high school with, because yeah. she's from that area. And like, it was one of those things where didn't necessarily come like we're talking about. You understood why it was popular, but you also sort of were like thinking about it critically um, in that way and trying to, but you didn't always have the tools to make yeah. sense of it. And, and that, that I think is key is like, you don't have the tools to make sense of it. Right. So like, it's just yeah. like we could say it's just media, right? It's it's the same way that other media empires just get you to believe what what they say is because it's it's a podcast. It's recommended. I get hooked. I don't have anything else better to do or just it just comes on or whatever it is. It's the next thing that the algorithm suggests to me. I dive in and and a yeah. lot of it is like it's something that you do by yourself like when you listen to a podcast or you listen to audio like you don't do it loud when everybody else is listening like you have your headphones on or you listen to it in your car alone and that's like something that you think about by yourself and it's in a way it's passive right the social media obviously you can control but like in a way like a podcast is passive you just listen to it and if you don't critique it or other people don't talk about it Sooner or later, like you're you're a Jay Moore sports fan for three years, and you you know like and you don't you don't critique it because there's no reason to. You just take it as truth, you know. And I I had yeah. that kind of reckoning with Joe Rogan. Like I listen to Joe Rogan all the time when I was commuting from L.A. to Fullerton. Like I probably consumed nine hours of Joe Rogan on my commutes, like every week. And doing like I listen to him all the like time. like one show. Hmm. It's like one episode. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, like I liked it, and then I started like I heard something that I was very familiar with, and the person totally said something wrong, and I'm like, that is incorrect. That that is not true. And you're talking about this person that I know that is not that that's not where they live, what they do, and I started becoming like really like critical like wait everything he said I've taken as truth over the years and I didn't think about that and I started thinking about like oh like I don't know if I like listening to this person anymore because 
I think I've been like brainwashed by this person because everything, because I never talked about anybody else or like I've never talked about the podcast with anybody else really. And then I just like, it just fell off yeah. the cliff and I haven't listened to him in like years. And my friends are like, hey, have you like heard this last Joe Rogan episode? I was like, no, like I just, I'm not yeah. going to dive in again. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, I was just going to say, early on we had a conversation about, you know, we were both, you know, college athletes as well. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure if, like, this was, like, the popular media when we were in college, like, we'd be sucked into this too. And we were trying to figure out, you know, how much we'd be sucked in and all this stuff. But I think we always did try to, you know, approach this critique in a way where we don't, you know, like, kind of like two things. We don't want to say, you know, the guys, like, I don't know, I was going to say, we don't want to say the guys who are like, or the people who are like consuming this are dupes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and we also don't want to say that everyone who listens to Barstool is somehow being radicalized, right? Right. I think those are too simplistic. So, you know, especially, and I, sh- I also want to say, our analysis in some ways is kind of dated because we're doing this critique of like a bar stool that really doesn't exist anymore. Yes. This new, this new bar stool with all the podcasts is a different iteration of bar stool. Hmm. So we, we were doing this kind of critique of bar stool when it had this main kind of thing it was doing that was more singular than this proliferation of media that it is now. Um, so, I mean, I'm always trying to be careful now with students when I talk about Barstool that it's like, I recognize Barstool is a lot of different things because it has so many different podcasts. Right. Um, but here's some things you should think about, you know, as you're listening to it and, and, and it's shaping how you see the world. I mean, I mean, you know, obviously the classes we teach, we're trying to give the students critical tools so they can, you know, create a little crack so they'll have that moment you had where it's like, wait a second, that doesn't make sense with like these other things I know in the world. But, you know, it, I imagine for a male athlete whose team is surrounded by like Barstool, who can, as you say, consume these like podcasts on his own time to whatever degree he wants to. It, I mean, that creates a pretty sizable, you know, wave of culture mm-hmm. that's washing upon your shore daily, yeah. telling you this is how the world works. This is how the world works. Yeah. And that's the thing that we're interested in trying to expose. You know, and not to say that, it, like I said, not to say that it radicalizes, and that's the end point. Because I think in, in a way, like all, if we're thinking about it politically, all Barstool has to do to win this struggle is convince enough young white men to to say, you know what, fuck diversity. They don't have to be like proud boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just have to be like, you know what, I'm no longer interested in, when I hear CRT, I'm done. When I hear feminism, I'm done. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you know, that's the moment, that's the political moment for me. And that's the license that yeah. they get from listening to that big white man sovereign, like that idea of this is how I can be. I can just shut it off. Because it's, yeah, yeah. it's it's difficult to like dig deep into how I feel and how my parents brought me up and who my friends are and what they think. And it's easier to just say, no, I'm not into that PC stuff. And I, and I teach a sociocultural class, uh, sociocultural issues in physical education class. 
we talk about it in general in sports and society and you know i have people from all across the spectrum of political beliefs in that class being in northern virginia which is a lot more of like more liberal leaning kind of people who listen to the content dig into the content and and agree with you know the way that a lot of scholars write right but then i do always have one or two or three students in there that they just like they have a wall and i know that i will most likely in 15 weeks of class not get through that wall but i can like like show that crack i can just show like just a little bit for them to maybe think about it in five years because if you would have told me at 21 when i was in i was in college as an undergrad some of the stuff like you know i, I dropped out of philosophy class because i didn't have to have it to graduate and the first class was you know like write a paper about what is a pencil and i was like get out of here i'm out of here like this this class is dumb like <laughs> And now, like, I like reading, like, philosophy books. Like, when I was in college, I, I read philosophy things, and I took an, a philosophy of education class. It was one of my favorite classes ever. And it was because I just wasn't ready. Not that the prof professor yeah. in college was dumb. Like, he was great. We were supposed to read all the books that he, he said, there's only journaling in the class, and you have to read these seven books. There's no exams. And I was like, great. And then he started talking. I'm like, I'm out of here. And, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's there's definitely 100% people in my classes that think the same of me. And they're like, what is this guy talking about? Like, why do I have to read about feminism? Or like, why do I have to understand what this argument about critical race theory is? Because I've already made up my mind. And it's hard to break through. Yeah. Or they'll say, well, it's about sports, so this stuff doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, I get a lot too from like, um, yeah, no, yeah, I, I, yeah, the, I had a, I had a mentor that used that phrase, like kind of like you were talking the crack thing, but she would say we're planting seeds and hopefully yeah. in ten or fifteen years they'll grow into, yeah. into trees or something like that. Yeah. It was a very nice feeling when you you said you get like the students that are just like staring back at you, like I don't care about this, you're not going to make me care about this, and I'm not going to do anything about it. I'll just show up and um, I'll get my grade and I'll leave. Um, and like and, nice and they that. will write papers that appease you, right? They understand the system. Like if I tell them to write a critical paper yeah. about this or this, like they're smart, they're intelligent college students and they can get an A in my class and, and fake it. Honestly, like I know that some of them do because then the conversations I have afterwards, I'm like, well, why did you write this paper? Like, oh, well, I thought that's what you wanted me to write. I'm like, ah, like missed yeah. opportunity you know like yeah definitely yeah they, they they do know how to tick the boxes yeah so is there is there anything that we've left off or like a takeaway message i, I mean I've, I've had a very enjoyable time chatting with you um but i'm wondering like is, is there like anything that we missed or anything that you want to leave off with as we kind of close out the podcast I've enjoyed my time too. I don't, I don't know. Like, I think this is a um, good, good spot to leave it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I really appreciate being on here and being able to talk about it again. Yeah. It's a good conversation. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us.
And so I'll, I'll link to the paper in the, in the show notes and um, uh, just want to thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.